0: Hello, and thank you for listening to Renewables, a podcast by Biostar, which aims to explore the current and future energy landscape in America.
1: Welcome back to Renewables, everybody. Thank you for tuning in this week. We're very excited about the conversation that we're going to be having with Duncan Campbell. VP of Project Analysis at Scale Microgrids. Duncan, thank you for being here.
0: Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Excited.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, It's a timely conversation because of some sort of world and uh, events that are going on right now that some of our viewers and listeners are probably following. Uh, Before we dive into that, Want to give you an opportunity? To just tell us a little bit about your background and experience, and how you ended up developing microgrids.
0: Sure. So, um, I guess in uh, in college, I studied mechanical engineering, got interested in power and energy and utilities. Um, I don't know. Did a few internships with utilities. Eventually, graduated and got a job with a cogeneration company. Uh, they packaged small cogeneration units like 150 kilowatts to two megawatts, um, which at the time in New York City was a really hot market. There were big incentives. Hurricane Sandy had just happened. People were concerned about resilience. Uh, did that for a while and was fortunate to work under some really awesome people. And eventually some of those folks left. Um And a little bit later, I got in touch with them and asked what they were doing, and they said they were starting this company that was going to focus more on holistic microgrids, not just cogeneration, but solar and batteries and smart controls and all this. Um, and I awesome. begged them to take me with them. And uh, that awesome. was scale. <laughs> and so here I am. Now we've been doing scale for four years, something like that.
1: That's great. Well, I appreciate that quick intro. And you you touched on cogeneration, which is sort of, I think, um, probably a good place to start with respect to kind of a microgrid 101. Um, We have a a diverse viewer amount of viewers. We have some folks who are really focused in the energy industry and are going to know exactly what we're talking about. But we also have some folks who might not know what a microgrid is, might not know what you mean when you say cogeneration. So If you don't mind, I'd love to start there. Tell us about cogeneration or combined heat and power. Uh, Some folks call it, right? Um, Or correct me if I'm wrong on that. There might be two different things. I know there's a lot of different ways. And and then after we talk on cogeneration, we'll jump into tri-generation, which is something we were looking at a project together at a tri-generation project, which I thought was really cool. So educate our, our listeners and viewers a little bit. Uh, kind of at a high level. What's a microgrid? What is cogeneration?
0: Yeah, I'll I'll sort of zoom out here at first and just what is a microgrid? Like what's different about a microgrid versus any other distributed energy project? And the most basic way to think about it is a microgrid project offers both uh, an economic and sustainability value proposition, like most distributed energy projects do, and a resilience energy resilience value proposition and it does those together in one project um, another way to say this that's a bit more maybe technical and wonky is you know in my experience most distributed energy projects say a rooftop solar project offers kilowatt hours but not really dispatchable kilowatts right um, whereas a microgrid does um, Another way some folks put it is microgrids tend to be islandable systems. So not just can they help you reduce your bill by, you know, reducing the amount of electricity you use from the utility. When the utility goes down, they can also remove themselves from the utility and power you maybe partially or even completely uh, during that outage. So this is debatable, but the most basic form of a microgrid would be a backup generator, right? It, uh yep. You know, when the utility goes down, you can fire that thing up. Now, some would say it's not really a microgrid if it doesn't do anything during normal hours. You know, yeah, it's backup, but does it, does it offer you some kind of benefit the rest of the year? The 99.9% of the time, you're not in an outage. And I kind of fall on that side of things. I think a microgrid has to do both. Um, so, and this is where we get to cogeneration. The sort of original microgrid, in my estimation, is cogeneration. And this is where you have some kind of fueled power plant that is at a customer's location behind the meter, so to speak, um, that is generating power for them, but also all the waste heat associated with that power production process is being used for some reason, Um, whether that's um, perhaps the waste heat is being turned into steam and being used for some kind of industrial heating load. Or very frequent in the smaller cogeneration projects is turning it into hot water and using it to heat a building, heat a buildings, you know, hot water, uh, domestic hot water supply, et cetera. And then you have this third option, which is tri-generation where you actually take the heat and turn it into something else. Um, There's types of chiller systems that run on thermal energy rather than electricity uh, called absorption chillers. So then you can have a system that makes power electric, uh, Power, heat, and cooling. Um, so, this was sort of the first, what I'd say, kind of commercial scale, frequently deployed microgrid system. It makes power for the facility during normal hours, reduces its operating costs, uh, but then also can operate when there's a grid outage and offer resilience. Um, and, you know, back when I started this stuff in New York City, right after Hurricane Sandy, a lot of CHP systems were bought and really they were bought because customers wanted a standby generator that had a payback, right? Mm -hmm. They wanted something that would give them power during an outage, but actually was economically useful as well during the rest of the year. Um, I mean, that's really what the small CHP market in New York city was built on
1: now in New York city, for example, what are they doing with the heat? Is that mostly being used for steam, heat, or hot water? I mean, because my understanding, and we've been a part of a couple of co-generation projects that were good projects, and they were good projects because we could use that heat, right? That's sort of the key to it. So I know every building's different, but in New York City, as an example, where we've seen a lot of this adoption because they don't have room for solar, they, they don't necessarily have room for huge battery systems, what are they doing with the heat most of the time?
0: Yep, so so usually it's being used either for heating the building, um, providing hot domestic hot water, um, or for cooling the building. So, you know, big New York City building, um, one type of HVAC design they might have is having a big boiler in the basement, a big chiller in the basement, and a two pipe system for each. So you have uh, hot water supply and return, chilled water supply and return, and It supplies the whole building, and so from a CHP project developer's perspective, that's great because you have one central place you can tap into, put all of your heat or put all of your chilled water, and you can access the thermal loads of the entire building. What you'll see sometimes, too, um, and this is particularly, I think, prevalent in kind of like older northeastern cities, is steam heating. Um, which for small chp systems can kind of be a challenge Uh, it's hard for them to produce a lot of steam because you need high temperature heat to do that rather than low temperature heat Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, so sometimes you'll use the exhaust from the chp to create steam and you'll use um, there's basically hot water that comes off the chp that's like the what in your car is like the radiator Um, you have that hot water that you'll use either then for the domestic hot water or for the, the steam will have a condensate return that needs to be brought that if you, if you put heat into the condensate return, that's just less work for the boiler to do than to turn that water into steam. That's another sure. strategy people use, but your point is right on the whole game. is CHP is, and this is what everybody says, finding a home for the heat. Um, yep. That's the game. And it kind of bridges, uh, how scale microgrid solutions was developed and why. We had been doing these CHP projects and where they're valuable, uh, or rather where they make sense, they're really valuable. Where you can get that, you know, the right amount of uh, electricity load to heat load, uh, a heating system that's centralized, where all those kind of factors go together in the right way and the stars align, CHP projects can really be awesome. But it's a little bit like finding a needle in a haystack. You know your hit rate's really low. There's just all these sort of binary things that can that can kill deals. Um, sure. So we set out to think, you know, how can we offer this economic sustainability and resiliency value proposition, the microgrid value proposition, in a way that isn't so hit and miss, that isn't so building specific. Um, sure. So we landed on the combo of solar batteries and just straight up generators, not a CHP, but just standby generators.
1: So that's kind of your common project.
0: Yeah. yeah. If you're interested, we can get into that. It's sort of a whole whole other thing. We still do CHP projects when they sort of show up, um, but our, our more sort of common standardized microgrid platform is the, those three technologies. Just sure.
1: Kind of- well, I'd love to dive deeper in that. Yeah. I'd love to dive deeper in that. As you know, we're a solar developer. Uh, we love the solar business and we've been in the solar business for quite some time. Um, we have not done as much in the sort of microgrid space, but obviously, uh, as battery technology, you know, becomes more effective, more efficient, cheaper. Uh, we're seeing a lot more opportunities to deploy batteries onto our solar project. So yeah, dive into that a little bit deeper and, and explain kind of what that means for our viewers and listeners. And, and let's talk about how solar uh enhances what you're able to do for your customers
0: totally yeah so yeah at the time scale was initially being conceived you know we we noticed that these these multi der systems so adding solar battery in a generator or or something of that nature um you know produce these kind of like one plus one equals three type outcomes they're more than the sum of their parts Um, And that's why you see like large institutions like the Department of Defense or, you know, very large university campuses, things like that, deploying these microgrid systems, um, because they sort of offer all this this complementary value that creates a system that's super beneficial and hits those three buckets that customers want economic sustainability and resilience. What we found though, is when you bring them down market to everybody other than the DOD and college campuses and the largest industrial facilities, um, they're very, very difficult to develop. Um, the reason just being the, the sort of amount of upfront time and energy and engineering and project development required to figure these things out is, is kind of immense. Um, just like was the case for these CHP projects we were doing previously. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we tried to solve for that problem. You know, how do we reduce soft costs? How do we make the project development process faster and more reliable and ultimately higher hit rate, right? Because that, yeah. as developers, like that's the game, right? Because every deal you spend time on that doesn't happen has to be paid for by a deal that does happen. Sure. Um, and so that's how we landed on kind of taking this more standardized, modular type approach, um, with solar batteries and standby generators. Um, and at a basic level, the, the, the idea here is traditional microgrid projects are one-off engineered projects, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you hire a consultant, uh, an engineering consultant or an energy consultant, you pay them 50 grand to do a feasibility study. Uh, one of two things can happen. They might say, there's no opportunity here, uh, in which case you're just out 50 grand. Or they might say, here's sort of the conceptual design. Here's what makes sense. You know, this this amount of solar can fit on your roof in the the field next door. This battery will optimize that solar. And then you need either this CHP system or this standby generator to give you resilience. Um, And here's how they'll all work together. Um, Then you'll pay that consultant another 25 grand or something to run an RFP process. You'll bid down all of the elements, you know, Here's the solar inverters we're going to use. Here's the battery. Here's the generator. Now here's the microgrid controller. Um, You know, bid down the construction, get it, you know, have 50 different GCs, look at it, all that stuff, right? And you end up with a cost optimized project. Maybe it's 5% lower CapEx than it would have been. Um, And at the very large scale, that makes a big difference, right? But the problem is you're now building a system that has never been built before, right? having all those components talk to each other and work and be controlled by one system, um, all the use cases and the way they're used together, this system has never been deployed before. And so there's this massive risk associated with actually having it work. Right. And what happens in so many microgrid projects is you build this thing that's never been built before, but no one treated it like a, like an R and D project. Right. We think of it as just, you know, power infrastructure, just like a solar PPA. Every everybody's expectations are way out of whack, and what you wind up with is a huge commissioning exercise. Like systems that never really meet the expectations that were created, project financiers that aren't very happy because you know they're not producing the revenues they're going to produce, or maybe they were predicted, but now you have customers that are unhappy because they're not getting the savings they wanted. But they're still paying some like fixed fee or something like that. Um, versus what we do is. We pre-engineer our systems, So we have, you know, 10 different solar inverters, 10 different standby generators, 10 different batteries, um, and one microgrid controller. And we pre-engineer any combination of those. Mm-hmm. So we can go to a customer with a menu of options. And we know that no matter what they select on that, and in reality, what our software selects with their guidance, this is a system we know works because it's all ready to go. Um, and it just massively de-risks the process. Um, so, you know, we can apply capital against projects much more efficiently. Um, we can engage in that pre-contract signature development process uh, much more quickly and, you know, take a little more risk on our side because we know sure. what the outcome is likely to be. Um, and it makes that, you know, sub $15 million microgrid system actually viable in the market. Um,
1: Very interesting. So with your success in that, have you have you had luck bringing outside capital into your business through your track record? Or or are you all funding this out of uh, out of sort of cash flows and existing developments that you have?
0: Yeah. For a while, outside capital was tough. Um, (laughs) It's hard to get somebody to listen to that story I just told. Right.
1: Well, and it's so like you said, it's so engineering heavy uh, that a, a capital investor you know, they they may not have an engineer on their team who understands that. And so, I mean, are they taking your word for it or, so that's interesting. How, you know, I, I'm interested to kind of discuss your ability to to bring capital into that and sort of that pre-engineering uh, how that's helped get, get capital investors comfortable.
0: Yeah, definitely. So yeah, the, in, in the early stages, it was tough, right? You go to a, uh, maybe your everyday solar project financier, it was kind of just like, what's the CapEx and OpEx and the PPA rate? You know, what's the right. yield? And you're like, well, back up. We were doing all this stuff. And, you know, it, it wasn't very successful. Um, raising capital in a sort of uh, efficient manner. So project to project, we had to find the people that were interested, which kind of ended up being the last piece of a standardization puzzle, right? Like, if you don't actually have a reliable source of capital you know you can apply against any new opportunity you really haven't standardized the 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 value proposition you've only focused on um ultimately after proving out the model doing projects showing you know they both work and they produce the cash flows they project um we were able to raise a fund in late 2019 uh from uh warburg Pincus. Um, Excellent. And what I think was pretty interesting about that was, um, you know, they, they've invested in a number of things, number of things in the energy sector, um, including some investments in sort of the the new energy sector. I don't use the term alternative energy anymore because I don't think it is alternative. Um, but, you know, this, this newer uh, energy tech type space, um, but a lot of their investment previously has been in oil and gas. Um, and I think the type of story we told about um, a, a new development process that unlocks uh, sort of a larger and, and larger market, but in a familiar space, you know, could remind an investor of even something like fracking, right? It was just combining okay. existing technologies and now there's this much bigger TAM, right? Um, I think we, we told a, sim- a similar story, just, you know, obviously in a different space, right? Um, and so they've been awesome partners for, you know, the past six months. Um, interesting timing to raise a big fund right before a pandemic hits. Sure. Um, but we've kind of pushed through that as well. And yeah, having having um, not just a source of capital, but like a really intelligent source of capital behind us um, sure. has unlocked that last piece of the standardization puzzle, which is essential for microgrids.
1: That's great. Now, you mentioned it first, not me, so I'm going to have to go there. Let's talk real quick about COVID. Has that been good or bad for business? I can see um, from a resiliency standpoint um, and then where maybe it's been good, Um, although, you know, like to kind of elaborate on that, if that's true, um, and just sort of hear from your take you know how is this pandemic? I can imagine. I know in our world a lot of big capital projects were put on the back burner. Um, but but talk a little bit just for a minute about COVID and has that been good, bad, and different uh, for your business?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the short answer is yeah, it hasn't been good for business. Um, sure. I, I don't want to really say it's good in any way, right? Um, you know, I'm here in New York City where COVID was a disaster, um, so mm-hmm. it's it's hard to think about it fondly at all. Um generally though the business impact I would I really wouldn't say good or bad it's different right um we found some deals um I'm not going to say fall by the wayside but sort of slow down you know not become the the uh the sort of prime focus of the customer right for good reason yep. like I had a bunch of hotel deals I was working on they had much bigger problems to deal with once occupancy went to like 1% um Sure uh, at the same time, to your point, yeah, I think in certain industries, um, particularly industries with complex supply chains, um, mm-hmm. this really made them start thinking about resilience. I'm thinking about like distribution warehouses, industrial parks, things of that nature, sure. where, you know, we heard all these stories about these supply chains grinding to a halt. And, you know, everybody had to scramble to figure out, you know, how the meat packing plant was going to work and, and all this kind of stuff. Right. And I do think it's begun to um, have customers are starting to think about energy as part of their supply chain, not just like overhead, not just like, you know, there's rent, there's this and that and energy, but actually an input to what they do. Um, Any smart supply chain manager will tell you, don't have one supplier, like (laughs) diversify, um, you know have different like uh ways of of uh like mechanisms for your pricing um and that that's been that's been big for us um folks are starting to think about energy a bit more that way i 'd say because of this this um you know this pandemic um I think that was already happening but uh, yeah I think it kind of pushed that that evolution a little maybe a little faster than it otherwise
1: sure. Well, and I think it was happening too, and, and I want to go uh, quickly to California and blackouts and wildfires, because I, I can imagine that as obviously um, causing a lot of growth in the microgrid space. And you're up in the Northeast in New York, so do you all do a lot of projects in California? Have you seen sort of a, a boom in your business from as a result of these blackouts and sort of energy uncertainty?
0: Yeah, you know, historically, we stayed away from California, because it, it's in a lot of ways from a project developer's perspective, um, Tough. It, it's just so unique, right? Yeah. You yeah. kind of have to be a California specific developer if you're going to do business sure. there. Um, a few years ago, when these public safety power shutoffs started happening, because the grid was um, starting wildfire fires, and really the only at least short-term feasible way to prevent that was to shut off the grid when it's hot and dry. Uh, when that started happening, we, we did make the choice to pursue California um, in a, in a very conscious way. Um, so we've been doing that for a few years now. And, and while I don't spend my time in California, I directly support the team that does. And we have an awesome team out there who's, I, I think like really leading the charge and changing the way people think about their energy options uh, in the state. Yeah. So, what's happening now in California is not only are these public safety power shutoffs an issue, but there's also a more traditional energy crisis, right? There's just not enough supply to meet demand. Um, And there's, I, I don't feel equipped to sort of diagnose exactly what's happening. I think it's very complex, you know, extraordinary heat wave crushing the entire West right now. Um, some problems with imports possibly, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's really complicated, but ultimately what it means for customers is um, over the past few years, the utilities have been shutting off the grid to prevent, you know, massive uh, you know, damages, uh, destruction and death. Um, And now um, the grid is shutting itself off sometimes too. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there's this general sense of like, how long do we put up with this for? Um, sure. And no one's talking about going off-grid, of course. That's a very expensive, often bad idea. Um, but what can I do to diversify? So as this happens, um, and customers are being trained to believe it will happen more and more. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, am I ready? Um, how do I do that in the most economic way? Um, and basically there's this 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 huge deployment of distributed energy resources happening in California right now most of which, by the way, are just traditional backup diesel generators. That's who we're out yeah. there.
1: Well, it's really fascinating because the if anybody who follows the federal space has been hearing resiliency, resiliency, resiliency for several years now, and you've seen some pretty awesome investment in you know being able to keep a, a military base running off-grid for 48 or 72 hours or however long. Uh, but now, and, and the other thing I find interesting is that Um, you know, there may or may not have been a lot of good incentives for stuff like this in California before, but um, what's stronger than any incentive program is the actual reality of having to run a grocery store or an assisted living community or whatever it may be, knowing that you might not have power for a substantial period of time. So it's fascinating how that resiliency seems to really be driving that And my next question is like, if I am a customer in California, what gets Duncan Campbell excited when someone calls up and says, Hey, you know, I'm, is it, I'm running an assisted living community or three assisted living communities. Like who's the best fit for these right now? And not just from a resiliency standpoint, because I think you can draw those conclusions pretty, you know, again, grocery stores come to mind, need to have power. Um, assisted living communities come to mind, but who is kind of the ideal candidate for you? Uh, and I guess why? What what makes a person or a customer or an organization a, a good fit for these types of solutions?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, the biggest thing, like if you're going to buy a microgrid versus a status quo solution, which on the economic side would just be standalone rooftop solar, or on the resilience side would be a diesel generator. If you're going to go for a yep. microgrid, the biggest thing is that you actually value the resilience. It's not just like a nice to have or like a added benefit that sort of you speak to when you're pitching sure. it to your board, but you actually want it and you're prepared to spend money on it. Right. Sure. Because if you're about to buy say a one megawatt diesel generator, we can do so much better for you than that. Um, we can give you something that a, you don't have to pay for up front, B has a net, uh, net positive impact on your operations on the economics of your operations every year mb actually supplies better resilience because it's more diversified it's 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 solar it's storage and it's a gas standby generator much better than diesel in every way um the other things though um i would say beyond sort of the the everyday things like you know is your roof good for solar Do you have space in the parking lot for this stuff? Is your switchgear not 70 years old? Beyond like kind of the typical checklist stuff, um, I think the biggest one is just like, are you the type of organization that is sort of has the mental space to look at something different? Um, Sure. No. And, and this is something that I think is misunderstood, but, You know, losing power is scary for a lot of these businesses. You know, I've talked to grocery stores that in a single one-day outage can lose like $60,000, all this lost product, lost sales, et cetera. Um, We also talked, you know, a luxury hotel um, that said in last year's public safety power shut-off season, they lost half a million dollars. Um, This this is like, there's a lot of pressure to solve this problem if it matters to you. Um, Sure. And psychologically, just going for the easy, simple, tested, proven solution, um, it makes a lot of sense, right? Just go get your backup generator. It'll be fine. Um, So I'd say beyond the technical requirements for microgrid and beyond actually having a need for it and having felt the pain and all that kind of salesy stuff, um, organizations that kind of uh, have a little mental space for, examining a different solution that might be better, um, that maybe think of themselves as leaders in their industry. Um, Those are the types of folks I get really excited about working with because, you know, they'll take the time to think about this um, and they sort of want to show their peers they're, they're doing something uh, that's sort of next level, if you will. Um, And ultimately what's cool about that too, is they're going to get all of that plus better economics, better resilience, better sustainability.
1: Right. Well, and you kind of answered my question there, which is how do you place value on that resiliency? Uh, But in the case of a hotel or a grocery store who just lost all of their perishable, you know, produce or whatever it may be, uh, it's probably a little bit easier to assign value and uh, create that that return or payback that everybody so desperately desires. Well,
0: that's like been the million dollar question in microgrids for a long time. Um, and we have a, a really, really smart analyst named Gary Digzit who just wrote a, um, a, a blog post on our website about this question. Exactly. How do you value resilience? And then how does it affect project development once you place a value on it? Um, and I'd suggest people go and read that. Um, but the short answer is there's two ways to value it. One, come up with a number. Maybe you've lost product during outages or you have some number in mind based on your experience. You felt the pain before and you actually quantified it. Uh, Two, use like a more academic sort of standard government index. So there's something uh, called the ICE calculator, but it basically says based on your location, uh, based on your industry, um, based on the frequency of power outages in your area, et cetera. Um, you know, here's here's the cents per kilowatt hour value of loss load. Uh, that's one sure. way to approach it. That's kind of like a baseline number. It's often not specific to your situation, but it kind of just provides a backdrop. Um, and the third way is maybe you haven't quantitatively figured out what's the value of resilience, but you know you want to solve for resilience and you're about to buy a generator. That's the value of resilience. The cost of that generator, buying it sure. and operating, that's the value of resilience to you. Um yep. so any of those situations are are where we can play, right? If you know the number already, great. If you're willing to accept a more academic number, great. If you don't know the number, but you're about to spend a bunch of money, great.
1: Right. <laughs> uh,
0: any yeah. of those, that that there's a real value of resilience. And that means sure. we,
1: uh,
0: we can we can actually sure. build a system predicated on that. And what you find, and this is the most interesting part, this is super misunderstood in our industry. Adding the value of resilience is not just, let's say it's $50,000 a year just to make that up. It's not just putting another 50 grand in the pro forma and helping get that deal done. It actually fundamentally changes the project design, often resulting in more solar and more storage, which then creates more non-resilience economics, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So when you value the resilience, it both changes the, the project design and therefore creates more utility savings as well. Mm. Um, so it, it really changes like the whole project's conception. Um, this blog post, you got to read it. It's su- super interesting stuff um, that uh, I, think, I think we're on sort of the cutting edge on.
1: That's great. Well, um, one last topic I wanted to cover. We're in the renewable natural gas business. Uh, we have a plant in California that's taking food waste that's been diverted from landfills, turning it into renewable natural gas. We're actually then turning it into electricity because of the low carbon fuel standard credits out there. But are you looking at or have you done a a microgrid project that has a RNG component? And do you see that becoming uh, a part of what you do? Because we're actually seeing some opportunities now where um, like distributed uh, RNG projects are starting to kind of pencil and and look really interesting for certain customer segments. So are, are you seeing that in your business?
0: Yeah, we're we're seeing a bit of that. Um, you know, it's I wouldn't say it's our primary focus because again, we're interested in um platforms that are like very scalable. And I think Perfect. RNG is going to play an important role, but you know, it's not sort of plug and play, right? It you gotta find the right situation for it to make Definitely sense. Definitely not. We're looking at yep. some that are are really interesting though, and I, I can't of course use the customer's name here, but we're looking at a project, um, a very large food processor. Um, Mm -hmm. and that produces a lot of, um, sort of nutrient dense wastewater that they have to treat before they put it into the sewage system. Right. And they treat that with a typical wastewater treatment plant. It produces biomethane. Um, and currently they flare it. Uh, what a shame that is right. Flared energy, uh, that's renewable. Right. Um, and so yeah we're looking at a project where you know not only do we you know refine that gas run it through a chp system and make electricity but most interestingly and i think this is where rng down the road will really shine it will produce their industrial steam that they need as well and that's Mm. something that's really hard to do with electricity right everybody talks about electrify everything as a decarbonization strategy and in a lot of cases that's very true industrial heat really hard to do with electricity if you need something like steam or sometimes maybe not hard but just expensive and i think rng is uniquely capable there um so that combo of uh, uh, cogeneration creating industrial steam and firm zero carbon power for utilities is like yeah. that's a magical combo that i think we're going to see a lot of
1: well, I'm glad I asked. I think we should catch up offline about that project. Uh, there might be some ways that Biostar can help there. Particularly, I'm interested in the uh, wastewater side of that. So um, we have some really good solutions for for cleaning wastewater, but I wanna wrap up with Duncan. How can our listeners, viewers, uh, how can they follow you? How can they follow scale microgrids? You mentioned um, a great uh, post on your blog. How can people log on, find you all, and and track some of this awesome work that you're doing?
0: Sure, yeah. First, um, you know, scalemicrogridsolutions.com. dot You can find us. Um, you can kind of go down the microgrids route, or you can go down the project finance route, depending on what you're interested in. You know, there's um, there's a, there's a blog that has some really interesting posts, including the one I said. Um, our our company's you know on Twitter at scale microgrids. Um, and uh, at LinkedIn, on LinkedIn, I don't actually know. Like, <laughs> Just search and you'll find it. Um, uh, and yeah, those are really the main ways to connect with us. Um, you know, myself also feel free to reach out to Duncan.Campbell at scalemicrogoodsolutions.com. Um, I'm on Twitter as well, Duncan underscore um, C.
1: And I think we've, we met on Twitter, right? Actually, uh, a colleague of mine, Peter Gohausen. Uh, follows you on Twitter, and he's always chirping into the kind of energy conversation. And I think that's how you two originally met, right? So the power of the social network.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Energy Twitter is an interesting place, um, but surprisingly, yeah. so some deal flow comes from it. Um, that's great. Yeah, yeah. And and I'd also be remiss not to plug, um, kind of in my own time outside of Scale. Um, I help organize a group called DER task force so distributed energy resources task force. Um, and it's, it's a group of individuals, uh, not corporate sponsored in any way, um, that are sort of deep in the distributed energy space. Um, and we, we do all sorts of stuff. We organize meetups with really cool guest speakers. We have a podcast. Uh, we have this really active Slack room. That's really interesting. People are like figuring out deals together sharing studies um all sorts of stuff like that um and then lastly we've started commenting on policy recently so on utility dockets you know pulling together 20 really smart people who know a topic and delivering their comments you know without sort of uh the corporate filter (laughs) having having it, it needing to go through um, sure. So that, that's been super interesting. So yeah, I check out dertaskforce.com as well.
1: Well, thank you very much. This has been fascinating conversation. Keep up the good work and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today.
0: Totally. Thanks, David. This was a lot of fun.
1: Thanks, Duncan. Take care.